how did this become normal? How did whiteness become the norm? Under what conditions did whiteness become the norm? Under what conditions did heterosexuality become the norm? Why is it that we think that that is normal? And why is it then that things that deviate from that norm are marked as queer or as dissident or as unsavory, right? So the naturalness of these social constructions is something that queer studies does a great job of questioning. And at the same time, decolonial practices would ask us to think about the longer histories of the ways of knowing these things. And I like to always insist that decolonial practice is about doing, but it's also about asking how we know the things we know. The voice you just heard belongs to Joseph Pierce, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation and an assistant professor of Latin American Studies at Stony Brook University in Long Island. Hello, my name is Zachary Small. I'm a senior writer at Hyperallergic, and today for the Art Movements podcast, I'm bringing you a conversation with Joseph. He and I first met at the American Museum of Natural History when I interviewed him during last year's anti-Columbus Day tour in which demonstrators were calling on the institution to decolonize its galleries. Only later when I did a little research did I realize that Joseph is also this amazing radical young academic who's helping to break queerness from the predominance of Euro-American discourse. So how is he doing that? Well, a huge project in the pipeline for Joseph is a special issue of Gay and Lesbian Quarterly devoted to decolonizing queerness. Now, if you don't know, GLQ, as it's called, is one of the most influential journals for queer studies in the world. So there's real potential for this project to shake things up. He's editing that alongside other great scholars like Maria Amelia Vitere, Diego Falconi Traves, Salvador Vidal Ortiz, and Lourdes Martinez Echazabal. It just sounds like a great project to keep your eye on. So the call for papers already ended on June 10th, but the finished issue is still some months away. That's why I was so eager to sit down with Joseph and get some preliminary thoughts on the field. And my first question for him was really simple. What is queerness? When we think about queerness, one thing that often happens is it's seen as a universal theory that can be applied everywhere. And what that ends up doing most of the time is maintaining a framework based in coloniality, based in white supremacy. And so what we want to do is question how queer circulates and if it's even possible to imagine queerness outside of the U.S. I mean, if we can't ask ourselves that question, then what we're doing is we're just leaving queerness to mark everything under its own umbrella and and it's and then it becomes no different than sort of second wave feminism or post-structuralism that that we're never able to really grapple with the multiple meanings or or the intersectionality right to to use another important term in in these debates on politics on the body on memory and on on history in different contexts wow so I think that you probably just blew a lot of minds listening to this podcast who are thinking, hey, queerness is supposed to be this liberating lens of truth, right? It's supposed to be the liberation for everyone and everything. And you're kind of saying, hold back. That's yeah. not always the case. Yeah. And so 
it also kind of sounds like you're going to be taking on the Euro-American institutions that have led to queerness's popularity. Someone like Judith Butler, for instance. Mm. Well, it's funny to me how Judith Butler, who I respect very much, is cited so frequently around the globe in a way that can often obscure local knowledges about desire, about performativity. So for example, in, in Latin American and Latin American studies, the gay liberation movements arise around the same time as they do in the United States, but people are actively theorizing from their own contexts mm. and from their own positions within a political framework. So what does that mean? Right. So, um, for example, in, in Argentina, the Frente de Liberación Homosexual, right, the Homosexual Liberation Front, um, was much more interested in aligning itself with the radical liberatory politics of the 70s and with the, the left, even though the left was rejecting them as queer. So it was much more about contesting inclusion in the state rather than demanding inclusion mm -hmm. into the state. And so that's one of the things that I think we also need to start questioning with a little bit more methodological precision. And that's something that from Latin America, that's a lesson I think we can learn from Latin America and from other colonized territories, even within colonized territories in the U.S. What is it that allows us to imagine that queerness can then be applied everywhere rather than imagining that queerness is itself a regional manifestation of contestatory politics in the U.S. So in a way, we have to stop imagining that queerness is universal and start paying much more, much closer attention to how localized people, local people, people in local contexts, bring to bear their own systems of knowledge. Okay, so here's where I kind of throw Joseph for a loop. I really wanted to know what he thought about Jair Bolsonaro current president of Brazil, and someone who's polarized critics in his own country for homophobic comments and also for being a climate change denier. What did Joseph think about South America's regime change? Oh my gosh, Bolsonaro. You know, one of the first things that, that he did was to eliminate protections for LGBT people. He has been railing against what he calls gender ideology, which is a new a newish um, sort of discourse that has come up across Latin America and played a really important role in, in the Brazilian elections in which we're seeing a right-wing Catholic and, and mostly evangelical backlash, this backlash against the gains in human rights for LGBTQ people. So this return to traditional values, Bolsonaro was just in the U.S. with Trump, and they were talking about shared values of tradition and of family. Bolsonaro even, you know, thanked Trump for, for sort of railing against fake news. And then just recently in Brazil, Bolsonaro has cut the budgets for some of the main research institutions, the main universities in, in Brazil, and that's going to have a drastic effect on who has access to public education mm -hmm. and whose voices get heard. Right. So take me back to the past. You know, tell me, how does this sync up or not sync up with how queerness has developed in South America mm -hmm. and other Latin American countries? Like, how did we get to this point with the Bolsonaro regime? Hmm. Well, I think that, you know, moving from 
Brazil's military dictatorship, which ended in the 80s, to recent presidencies, you know, Lula and uh, Dilma Rousseff. You know, what, what we're seeing is a rejection of political correctness and a sort of collapse of identity politics and special interests, sort of quote unquote. And so it's in a way, white people feel threatened. And this is a way of attempting to consolidate power by rejecting other modes of living and other modes of loving. And that is something that queer studies has a lot to where we have a lot of work to do. But I think also um, this is where queer studies can enrich decolonial practices because we have to be able to question as well how settler states enact regimes, disciplinary regimes upon particular bodies, how settler regimes racialize bodies and discipline in gendered ways and sexual ways, the subjects that then become legitimized by the settler state. So decolonial praxis would reject that outright, right? Mm -hmm. The state cannot be the source of my identity formation. Rather, as we would say in, you know, in Cherokee, we would ask to be in good relations, right? What does it mean to be in good relations with other people and with our ancestors rather than asking for the state to legitimize our relationships, our understandings, our epistemologies, Mm. yeah. And so in terms of those relationships and sort of the space between the state and the body, but also, I guess you could also say decolonization and queerness, you know, Mm. what's the flip side of that where Uh, How can decoloniality affect queerness? I think on the one hand, we could say that decoloniality has to contend with queerness as one of the main vectors through which bodies are disciplined. What I mean by that (laughs) is that if we can go back to, you know, the 1500s, colonizing powers aimed primarily to dispossess indigenous peoples of land. One of the many strategies that they used to do that was to disparage, disregard the more fluid or just simply different understandings of gender, sexuality, the body, land. And why did they do this? You know, I think that in order to dispossess a community of land, you have to transform that community into unworthy, right? In order to dispossess a community of land, you have to imagine that they are unworthy of that land. And Mm. this is something that settler governments were very good at. And this is how, from a sort of Foucauldian perspective, right? Thinking back to discipline and punish, punish, for example, Michel Foucault would, would write about how disciplinary sites of the government, such as the military, the school, these sites allow settler regimes to shape bodies and to dismiss ancestral knowledge. Mm. And in erasing and in dismissing, and we could also add to this, just flat out eliminating indigenous peoples, then the settler state is able to implement a new way of relating to the land that's based on capitalist production. Mm -hmm. So in order for the state to expand economically, in order for it to be a settler colony, it has to first dispossess indigenous communities of land and then replace those communities with settlers. One of the ways that they justify that is by dehumanizing indigenous peoples. And that was one of the main debates of the 17th century, right? Are Indians 
humans? Mm. Do we have a soul? And if we are not human, then we can be enslaved. But if we are human, then we're not supposed to be able to be enslaved. And this is one of the main debates, you know, in Spanish intellectual circles and in the early colonial period. Mm -hmm. you know? And I imagine studying this history, being a queer person yourself, that's a lot to carry, mm. right? How do you mm. carry that knowledge with you into the present mm. and into your own sort of personal practice? Mm. I try to be humble about that and I try to, when I think of how do I do that, I try to draw strength from the resilience of my ancestors. I try to draw strength from community and in mutual recognition. I try to draw on activist practices and I try to be humble about how I engage with, with other people. So for me, doing this queer work and doing decolonial work is about building community outside of the state because the state will never set us free. Right? We have to build community and we have to be able to recognize each other in ways that evade the state that evade the capture the the interpolation of the state you know and and so as an indigenous person walking around new york city it can be very weighty it can be very heavy you know wall street was one of the first border walls erected mm. in in the u.s i didn't know that yeah wall street was one of the forts that was erected by the dutch in order to mark a distinction between indigenous land and white settler land. Is that why it's called Wall Street? Yes, that's why it's called Wall wow. Street. Yeah. So again, in Wall Street, you have this confluence of the historical and and the modern, where if at first it was the dispossession of land, now it is through the speculation of the market. And in fact, I would, I would it's actually... It's the dispossession of wealth. It's the dispossession of wealth. And I would actually argue that they're both dependent upon speculation. Because in order to dispossess someone of land, you have to imagine that there's going to be a benefit in that for you. So when we think about the colonial process, one of the ways I like to think about it is that it is, it is a way of like servicing a debt. Right? Because colonial powers speculated on the land in the Americas in order to imagine that it was going to bring them mm -hmm. wealth, right? And so they're paying off a debt and we, indigenous peoples, become not just the collateral damage, but the bodies that must be removed in order for that settler regime to expand economically. You heard it here first. America's first border wall was constructed by Dutch settlers in the 17th century right here in New York City. Isn't that fascinating? That's what I loved about interviewing Joseph. I learned so much. One of the people that he turned me on to is Claudia Rodriguez, a Chilean poet who identifies as travesti. Travesti is a word that in English would probably roughly translate to transvestite. However, in Latin America, it refers to people who make social and corporeal modifications, shifting from having been assigned male at birth to considering themselves travesti. In some cases, it becomes a third gender category, but it also implies an important political position and is often associated with sex work and social marginalization. Travesti is a gender nonconforming subject position that carries with it particular political and social resonance in Latin America. Lucky for us, Rodriguez agreed to share one of her short poems with us, which you're about to hear. It was originally recorded by the Chilean newspaper La Tercera, which gave us permission to use the audio, 
A huge thank you to them. The English recording that you'll hear right after was actually done by our reviews editor, Desan Lopez Casal. Thank you, Desan. Dicen que no sé hablar y hablan por mí en mi contra, porque según ellos es culpa mía ser tonta como soy, pero mienten, es su torcida forma de ver el mundo lo que me hunde, lo que me humilla, lo que me enferma y debilita. Mienten cuando hablan del pueblo, del hambre y del frío, negando a las travestis cuando hablan, siempre hablan a su favor, para su beneficio. Ellos nunca pierden, ellos siempre recuperan, mienten cuando nunca imaginan que una travesti como yo luche, resista y sobreviva. Ser travesti es maquillarse la cara mientras llega la noche en diferentes espejos. Atreverse a usar colores fuertes para salir a la calle con frío. Para que me digan Susi y caminar por vicuña y bailar y tomar un copetito mientras pasa la hora. Y encontrarme a ratos con la esta y con la otra y conversar con los hombres que se creen hombres para lamerlos un rato y emborracharme. Y ensuciarme de droga y aunque me duela la muela masticar un chicle con sabor a mora y pensar en el este que se fue con mi plata y enfermarme de rabia y perder la memoria y volver al departamento a pagar las cuentas y comprar más maquillaje para tapar la pena de llevar a cuesta este misterio. They say don't speak. They speak for me and against me. Because according to them, it is my fault to be as silly as I am. But they lie. It's their twisted way of seeing the world that ruins me, humiliates me, weakens me, and makes me sick. They lie when they speak of the people, of hunger and of the cold, disavowing travestis. When they speak, they always speak for their own benefit. They never lose, they always recover. And they lie when they say that they've never imagined a travesti like me. Fights, resists, and survives. To be a travesti is to put on your makeup in different mirrors as the night rolls in. To dare to use strong colors out in the street and in the cold. To be called Susie and walk the vicuña and dance and drink to pass the time. And find myself at times with this queen or the other one. And talk to men who think they are men. To lick them for a while and get drunk. And debase myself with drugs. And even though my tooth hurts, chew blackberry gum. And to think about that guy who left with my money. And to get sick with rage and to lose my memory. And to go back to my apartment to pay the bills and buy more makeup to conceal the pain of bearing the burden of this mystery. Now, I've listened to that poem again and again, and every time it, it just really shakes me to my core. Joseph and I have actually been talking a lot about Rodriguez's work over the last few weeks and during our interview. When I had a chance to interview him, I asked how we can make more voices like hers accessible. The issue of translation is crucial, and I would say, yes, we absolutely need to translate more Latin American theorists, but also we need to translate into multiple languages so that English is not the lingua franca of intellectual discourse, mm -hmm. because that reinforces the epistemological foundations of English in the Americas. So if we can start to question that, then we can then start to make links between South-South projects, between Brazil and 
Argentina and Chile and Ecuador and South Africa, mm-hmm. right? Where we're not actually depending on francophone or anglophone queer studies to guide Latin American studies mm-hmm. from Latin America. So who's a philosopher or a critic from a queer Latin America that people should really know about? So I would say that Larissa Pelucio in Brazil um, has a really amazing has really amazing work about what she calls teoria cu. Cu in Brazilian Portuguese means your your asshole. Uh, <laughs> so she rather than rather than theorizing queer studies, she's theorizing from the asshole of the world and from the anus as a site of bodily praxis. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really, really important, right? Because queer, when it travels, doesn't have the same resonance in other places. It doesn't mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. So you kind of have to be more creative in how you are employing that term or rejecting it outright. The geopolitics of knowledge is one of the things that we really have to question Mm -hmm. when we're talking about queerness. Another scholar that I find really, really amazing is is a friend of mine, Diego Falconi, who's from Ecuador, and he works in Barcelona and, and in Quito, and he has a series of, of articles and, and a book about queer theory, where he, where he spells it C-U-I-R or C-U-Y-R. Mm. And in the C-U-Y-R, he's talking about the cuy, the, the animal, the guinea pig. And so taking the Andean context where indigenous communities in the Andes, Quechua speaking people and, and Quechua speaking people like use the cuy as a food source. Right. And so Falconi has uh, this really beautiful meditation about how rather than queer studies, we need queer studies. <laughs> right. But it's not just about finding a phonetically similar term. It's about questioning how that term can be repurposed how that how that term can be made to resonate within a particular context that mm. for me is is the key on the flip side what are things that are misunderstood like what what frustrates you not only about this field but about how people perceive what you're doing mm. one of the frustrating parts is how sometimes people can be dismissive of queer studies as uncritical of its own foundations, kind of like what we were talking about earlier. And so from Latin America, what people are doing is sometimes dismissing queer theory outright and and trying to come up with terms, right? Language to speak about themselves in their own ways. And I think that that's, that's really important. One of the things that frustrates me about this is that we still are coming up against people who don't think that the particularly positioned subject matters in the same way as high theories universalizing Mm. tendencies. So, you know, I get frustrated when people dismiss queer theory as identity politics, where what it what it really does is it questions identity politics rather than reifies Mm. identity politics. And identity politics is important. I mean, I'm not I'm not dismissing that, but or when people collapse queer studies into something that is only about sex or what we do with our bodies. It's about more than that, right? Mm. It's it's about how we understand the meanings that we make as we move about the world. I want to ask a question that I've been asking a lot of people, which is what do you envision for the queer decolonized future? What is your manifesto on the future? Well, I think we need to 
ask ourselves, who are we responsible to? I think if we ask ourselves, what communities do we belong to and what communities are we responsible to, we will begin to realize that for too long we've been beholden to institutions and the state Mm -hmm. for recognition. As a Cherokee person, I don't need the U.S. government to recognize me. I know that my community recognizes me and I'm responsive and responsible for that recognition. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that in the future, I would like for curriculum to curricula to include native voices. That seems like an easy one. (laughs) Uh, I would like more text to be translated in multiple languages. I would like for promotion and tenure cases to change, to incorporate more activists and other forms of public engagement. This is a pretty concrete manifesto. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. (laughs) I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, I would also like to see the white people in charge of queer movements ask themselves whether or not they should still be in charge. Mm. I would like for people in positions of power to ask themselves how they got to be in that position of power, honestly, and not just say that it's on your own merit, because that's an easy way out. I would like- Or that they were lucky. Or that they were lucky. I think that when we start to ask ourselves these more difficult questions, then we can see that the way forward is not by constructing a more robust multicultural society. It's by engaging with communities on the terms set by those communities. It's in asking people in power to question why and how they got to be in that position of power. It sounds very democratic. Well, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Sometimes I kind of wish I could just, you know, wave a magic wand, but you know, these things are hard and they, and they require trust in a lot of cases. And, and so, you know, as an indigenous person, it's hard for me to trust institutions um, which have never upheld my interests. Mm-hmm. And you're working in one of the biggest institutions of them all, yeah. academia, yeah, right? Exactly. And so, you know, how can we how can we fuck up academia, right? How mm-hmm. can we challenge the the circulation of knowledge and challenge who are the gatekeepers of that knowledge? I'm sure that when more indigenous people are in those positions, then the conversations that we're having are going to be different. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's not just about improving diversity. It's about questioning why we have the idea that there is such a thing as diversity. Why do we have the idea that we need to include more of these people? How did those people get left out to begin with? What are the circumstances that led them to be excluded on the basis of their identity, their history, their language, their educational opportunities, these these structural things, right? If we can't get at the structural bases that uphold power, then nothing's going to change. Right. Something to think about. Well, thank you so much for coming into the podcast studio and speaking with me. It's been eye-opening. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much, Zachary. That was really fascinating. Thank you. 